Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he doesn't play with any of those new Cleave cards because he's too busy playing with Ember Cleave. That's Matt Morgan. Joe, I went to a magic show over this past weekend and it was pretty entertaining. Um, the audience loved everything, especially the act where they sawed people in half. Um, but the volunteers were kind of divided. The <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, I, I've got nothing to say about that except abracadabra, Matt. I'm, I'm glad you thought that joke was a real side splitter. <laughs> this this is too much. I've you, got you, can tell me, you can tell me to cut it out. That's fine. <laughs> I've got dad jokes from you, I get dad jokes from my husband, and I'm about to get dad jokes from our next co-host as well. Up next, in the great tradition of Megamorph, he actually can't wait for Cleave to become Mega Cleave, where all of the words in the card get redacted. It's Dana Roach. Hey, bud. Um, in the honor of the first snowfall of the year here, I need to ask you, Joey, what did the first snowman say to the second snowman? I, I dread to know, Dana. What's going on? Do you smell carrots? <laughs> You guys are silly. I'm so happy that we're, you guys do a show silly. with me. Okay. We're the ones telling we're dad the jokes, but you're, you're busting out the S word. <laughs> silly. Oh my goodness. Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we'd like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Matt, what is it that we're talking about in this week's episode? So this week, we're going to talk about all the new commanders that have been released in the past, you know, however many sets there have been in the past 20 minutes, I would say. Um, but just how do you handle all that overload? There's a lot of information out there and it's hard to weed through sometimes. So how do we handle mm -hmm. navigating that, that field? Yeah, how do we handle product overload? How do players handle product overload? What can the data on EDHREC tell us about the ways that players spend creative capital? It should be really, really interesting to look through all of the numbers here. Real quick, before we get launched into our main episode, let's pause and give a huge thank you to the folks at the Command Zone podcast who handle the post-production work on our podcast here, making it look as spiffy as it does. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors for the show too. The EDHREC cast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and the TCG player, the snowmen, both frosty and abominable of the snowman world. <laughs> Just head over to EDH Rec and click on the card in question. You'll be able to choose the vendor link down below, and doing that supports both the site and the show. And if you'd prefer to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash EDHRECcast. We have patron tiers of all sorts of levels for whatever you want to do, and you just support the show and just get yourself a little extra perk on the side, whether it's joining our Discord community, whether it's getting some swag that we send out. We're getting ready to send out our Christmassy end of the year swag, um, just some awesome gifts, just thanking folks for subscribing and supporting the show. It's just a great way to reward yourself for supporting the show at the same time. Um, we even have a very, very special tier where we shout out somebody just for supporting us because we like i said we appreciate it so nick farino thank you so much for your support um you're getting that very special shout out it's a coveted spot and you just happen to have earned it this week <laughs> thank you so much for your support nick we super appreciate it 
And now, fellas, now we're going to get into our main topic here, where we're talking about how players seem to be handling product overload and what players seem to be spending creative capital on, which is a term that we've used in prior episodes, but is probably worth a refresher. So, uh, Matt, do you want to really quickly run us through, to your mind, what the idea of creative capital is when it comes to player retention and deck building and all of that nonsense? Yeah, absolutely. So, like we, like Joey said, we've brought this this term up a few times that's kind of been growing in, in use. But when we say creative capital, we mean players all around the world, they only have so much time or effort or money especially to be building decks. You don't have the time to be brewing a deck for every single commander out there. And so any of those resources that you put into creating a new deck, that's kind of what we mean as your creative capital. You, you only have so much of XYZ resource out there to be putting into this game. And so what is your creative capital? How much um, are you able to invest into any given commanders? Um, that's what we mean by that. Yeah, very, very difficult to build six commanders from a single set, you, you know, that type of thing. Like, Matt, you have your Valduk deck from Dominaria, but it would have been very, very hard for you to also build like Muldrotha and Evra and stuff like that. I mean, un unless you're Brian Canada with uh, Cure for the Common Game, who has hey. a deck for every single deck out there, every single legendary out there. Um, not an envious spot. I mean, kudos to you, Brian, but man, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> Yeah. Dana, do you have any quick thoughts about the ideas of creative capital? Is this a thing that you've run into? Do you do you feel that as a pressure on yourself as well? Or I don't know, before we even actually get into any numbers on a set by set basis, I'm just curious what your experience is with this, um, where your deck building energy feels like it has the ability to go. I, I don't have any problems with this in part because I very rarely build a deck unless the commander has been out for a year or two. <laughs> this um, is a good point, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's intentional. Like, I, I just want to wait, and and I, I like to build commanders that don't see a ton of play, so I want to wait and let them sit for a while and see if they don't see a ton of play before I even look at them in the first place. Um, so I'm, I never feel like I, I see that new commander out, and like, I really want to brew this. I, I just don't have that urge. Um, mm -hmm. I, I might file it away for later, but like this is something that really doesn't plague me because of the way I tend to brew. Um, but I, I completely understand how it's a thing for people because you routinely on Twitter, whenever a new set comes out, see someone like, I want to build this and this and this. And I'm like, that's a lot to have to deal with right away. It's, it's enough <laughs> work alone just to make, make cuts for the new cards you find for existing decks, let alone to want to brew two or three decks out of every set. That's insane. Yeah, if you want to build multiple decks from every single set that comes along these days, you're taking on a lot. And, and man, yes, kudos to you. It, it does sound to me a little bit, though, Dana, like maybe you actually it, it's not necessarily that creative capital and the deck building bandwidth or whatever. The way that you described it, it actually sounds like you just have very, very, very small amounts of creative capital to spend is actually because of how long it takes, maybe? Is that too much of a, a read-in? Am I no, reading too closely? Well, no, because <laughs> like, it, it just hits me in different ways because I, I'm, I'm yeah. trying to, to find a way to build a deck generally with a commander that isn't super popular, and I'm usually trying to build a deck that doesn't play in a similar way to a deck I currently have. Right. Which the more decks you have becomes more and more difficult to do. So, yeah, I mean, like every new deck I build becomes more and more challenging for that reason. Well, I would say that your, yeah. your, your creative capital, as it were, then it's not so much put onto the sets and the commanders themselves, but 
what is going on with your current suite of decks and how can you right. do something new to, to to offer and expand on that that's it sounds like yours isn't so much when a new card is previewed eh, that's that's fine and dandy for you but um, where does it fit in everything else you're already doing yes and especially what I think is so important about this type of uh, this type of analysis now is that, you know, we've gotten so many more legendary creatures in recent sets. A whole bunch of sets are having like 15 plus, sometimes up to 20, sometimes 25 legendary creatures per set. And if the amount of creative capital that players still have, if your deck building bandwidth is still kind of at that one deck per set base, then that has an interesting effect on the other legendary creatures that could come out in those various sets. And that is just a really interesting thing to look into. And we kind of wanted to examine what it is that players are doing, how players are responding to all of those big forces of getting tons and tons of products that also contain tons upon tons upon tons of new commanders all of the time. Real fast, this is this is a fun moment that I think will sort of help orientate us a little bit for what the rest of the show is going to look like. I was very curious about the, um, I'm calling this the big one, the big measurement, because at the current time of recording, there are 629,203 decks in the EDH rec database, and there are roughly 1,200 commanders in the format. This is a very rough amount because partners make this a very difficult thing to measure exactly, but I was curious how many of the top commanders make up 50% of that 600,000 figure. Like if you were to cut the format in half and balance it on a scale, how many commanders would end up on each side of the most popular and the least popular of those 1200 commanders? And real quick, Matt, did you do you think you had a guess before you found out what the figure was? Would you've expected it to be pretty even or really lopsided? I'm just really curious. Well, um, as a good student does, I did my homework five minutes before it was due. Um, so I've not seen okay. this note, but I, we, in, in all seriousness, we did talk about this a little bit. So I intentionally have not looked at this, this note yet. Okay. Um, so taking into consideration, like the thousands of commanders, probably, well, not thousands, hundreds, I should say, because you just said there's 1200 total commanders, um, the hundreds, yeah. hundreds of commanders with one or two decks, anything like that, um, I would say there's probably 150 to 200 is going to be my like off the brain guess because once you, I mean, even when you're in the top 100 that you can see on on EDH rec, there's still quite a few decks for all those commanders. So I would say 150 as a low as a low number. All right. So roughly you're expecting the top 150 commanders make up just as many decks as the rest of the commanders in the yeah, format. Slight, That's slightly, the more, slightly more than 10% of the commanders take up half of the total decks. And Dana, where would your estimate have fallen? Maybe you did cheat on the homework. I'm not I, sure I did cheat in the homework. I know the answer, okay. <laughs> um, but I, I know what my guess would have been. And my guess would have been probably around 60 to 70. It's so funny to hear that because, indeed, y'all split the difference yep. pretty evenly. Okay. The okay. answer is 101 from Kenrith at the number one spot all the way down to Xenagos, God of Revels at spot 101. The top 101 commanders combine to a total of 313,234 decks, which is approximately half to that 600,000 figure that we saw earlier. So again, the top 101 commanders in the format have just as many decks as the remaining approximately 1,100 commanders in the format. To put this another way, that is roughly 8% of the legends in commander make up 50% of the deck building energy in the format. 
I feel like this is Kuka banana pants. That that is the official um, analysis term is, is a little bit cuckoo. But that that seems really interesting to me to see just how popular popular is. Like Matt, did, does that number surprise you when you hear it? No, not at all. I mean, it, hearing the explanation and then kind of thinking back on it. Um, I mean, I did kind of in my answer mention like the top hundred ish commanders. Um, that we mm. can see. So it's uh, kind of, I was right. I was closer than Dana. <laughs> um, so I, I, win. I don't know if that's true. He said like 70, he was like eh, only 30 off and you eh. were 50 off. I don't know. But I did I, say I, like, when you think about the top 100, <laughs> I, I, that was in my, my rant. I, I think price is right. Rules were in effect here, Matt. I think oh, that's oh, that's, going over. okay. Okay. <laughs> you know what? Bob Barker just hush down. But no, I just think that's so interesting to see just how lopsided some of this deck building energy is that those titans of the format really are the titans of the format. You know, the Kenriths and the Corvolds and all of those at the the very tip top really do like we, we see a lot of those big names occupying quite a lot of the deck building space, which is it, I mean, Dana, for you, it's got to be very, very interesting, if not difficult, because I know how much you want to avoid anything that is popular to any degree. It, it's it's gotten easier um, when they started printing 150 commanders per year, <laughs> way simpler than it was back when we'd get, you know, 15. Um, yeah. So that's definitely made my life easier, I think. But I, I do think definitely like if you go into your average LGS, I would say on commander night and there's, you know, 20 to 30 people playing, um, you know, I guess Golos is gone now, but like once upon a time, there'd have been three or four Golos decks going and a couple of Kenrith decks and a couple of Eureka decks. And I, I do feel like generally speaking, those top, you know, 20 commanders very heavily dominated the public playing space um, out there in the wild, so to speak. Um, I, I didn't know how to kind of quantify that. And apparently that just means the top 100, you know, take up a lot of the space, not the top 50 or 60 or 70. But um, I, I definitely was not surprised to see how heavily represented those popular commanders were. Yeah. I mean, it, it, even comparing to my anecdotal evidence, kind of like what Dana mentioned, I mean, looking back, it was like, oh, yeah, I've seen... 10 Atraxa decks out there for every, oh, hey, cool, the Mean and Den Wildborn deck. Like, that's that's pretty cool to see. You don't sure. see that very often. Um, that absolutely kind of rings true. And the more that I'm kind of processing this here, uh, the more I, I believe the numbers, even though, yeah, I should believe the numbers because they're actually there. Well, and so that is just it as well, is that I think we do need to take that figure with a pretty decent grain of salt because EDHREC does not have perfect data. It's impossible to have perfect data. The overwhelming majority of commander players do not put their deck lists online, and that is a thing to be very cognizant of as we look at more figures in this episode. So, Matt, that makes me want to pitch this question back to you with that understanding or that framework uh, now. Do you think that this disparity, when if we were to extrapolate it out to all of the decks that we can't actually measure, do you think that this disparity is even more severe or do you think it's actually more even what what would you expect um it's hard to tell really uh, because at, at some point the the data that we are able to see and then we display back you know we're only showing information that we are getting from the deck building websites out there like mtg goldfish architect moxfield all mm -hmm. those sites that we do get information from we're only repeating that back and kind of translating it for everyone to see so the information that we're getting is just the, the best that's available. Um, yeah, you're absolutely correct. It is not perfect data. Um, it is not entirely representative by any means. Um, it's just the best that we're working with. At the same time, it almost becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy where people see the numbers and so they just repeat the numbers. Um, so I mm. think it's a little bit of both, really, that it, it is not and it is represent, rep representative. Um, and I know that's 
um, kind of impossible to do. But yeah, I, I think depending on kind of your play group, um, what the the shops are like at your any, any, any at any given area, excuse me, um, it could be doing either or. Yep. And Dana, I'm going to throw the question back to you. Do you think that this problem is like bigger in the real life? Like, do you think that Kenrith is actually, there are tens upon millions of Kenrith decks that we're not seeing? Like, uh, I don't know. That's a very obvious exaggeration. But like, do you think that the disparity is bigger in the stuff we can't see? Or is this, where are you at with it? I'll just throw the question to you. Yeah, my guess is this, is the popular commanders are probably even more popular among the underrepresented players. Um, at least based on my experience with those kind of kitchen table only people, um, they tend to, and again, this is in my experience, not pay attention to the, the precise things in the 99. They're not necessarily looking to see what's better than Manolith. Um, they are just filling their deck with the cards they have, but they tend to be more purposeful about the commanders they pick. And they mm. do see that shiny Kenrith and that shiny Muldrotha and, and, and that shiny Atraxa. Like they see those splashy commanders that do strong, powerful things. Um, and, and maybe they don't fill the deck with the the same cards that entrenched players do, but they do like their their commanders to to be heavy hitters. So I would guess out there in the wild we see the same thing we see. Um, and, and it's probably more heavily skewed towards that because they're also probably not digging deep because they're just not entrenched players. So they're not they're not finding those old legends. They're just building the new big ones that they see from recent sets that are quite popular. Well, and, and to build off of that, too, with the, the increase in power of the pre-constructed decks and how great they are as a tool for getting players into the format, um, I would say some of those very powerful commanders that we're seeing in those pre-cons, they're, they're absolutely probably out there more often than we're even seeing on the website because they're just buying a pre-con, they're putting in the, the commander they think is the best, and then ro rolling with that, and they've never even heard of Moxfield. Um, I think right. that absolutely is the case, yeah. So, yeah, some of the, the most popular commanders, like that, that top 1%, they might be even more represented out there. Yeah, that is, I think, where Eileen is as well. But, you know, it's tough to say exactly. It's tough to draw specifically. But, you know, that was just one of several figures that I think we can look into. And I think it would be interesting for us now to turn our attention to sort of on a set by set basis, doing that same, you know, how many of the top control 50% of the deck building energy only on a more set by set, uh, set, by set case uh, basis, which could be pretty interesting to see, you know, especially through that framework of where does the deck building energy go? Where is that creative capital being spent? Especially as there are sets upon sets upon sets that are all released right next to each other. So let's examine some recent sets and maybe a few old ones to see what we feel about it. I guess starting with Crimson Vow. This is the most recent set that we're seeing full of vampires and a whole bunch of stuff, but there are 23 legends in Crimson Vow and let's get right to the numbers. I guess we're just going to dive right in. There are about 5,000 decks total to Crimson Vow so far at the time of recording and and looking through it, the top four most popular commanders from Crimson Vow, Toxwirl, Runo, Umbris, and Grolnok, they approximately make up half of the deck building energy out of all of the commanders from Crimson Vow. So four out of the 23 commanders, like that's pretty crazy to me. The top four commanders from Crimson Vow have just as many decks as the other 19. Well, and that number gets even more steep because the difference between the number four and the number five commanders in the set isn't all that many, <laughs> yeah. um, but because it is, it, but because it is the four that make up half, like that's still strong enough to to really show off that point. 
because yeah, the drop off gets very steep very quickly um, with these commanders. And and like Joey said, it's fairly early in the the deck building cycle for Crimson Val, so there these numbers might fluctuate a little bit. But um, so mm -hmm. far, I mean, Toxroll the Corrosive is the most built commander, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. It could be. I don't know. I feel like Toxroll such a Toxroll such a weird thing to play against. I would love for Runo to the the Mister Stromkirk man who see, see creatures in Demir. Like I, I would love for him to overtake Toxroll. That's just me. I, I have no goodwill towards the slug, but that's just me. I do think it's really interesting here that right off the bat we are seeing three Demir commanders at the top of Crimson Vow. Like the Umbris, Runo, and Toxrel are the three most popular commanders from Crimson Vow. That's three Demir commanders in a row, and they're leaving the rest kind of in the dust. And I think that's just a fascinating thing to observe when it comes to creative capital. So uh, we've we talked about this a little bit um, an episode or two back. Things we're thankful for. We mentioned how we like the the interesting Rakdos commanders we've gotten this year. Um, if you would have asked me earlier this year, like what color pairings had the least amount of interesting commanders, I would have said Rakdos, Demir, and Boros. Um, I feel like there's been an effort made this calendar year to give us an interesting, diverse spread of Demir commanders, which we're seeing this year, of Rakdos mm -hmm. commanders, which we've seen throughout the course of the year when we talked about on our thankful show, and giving us Boros equipment commanders, which we've seen all year. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> that we've seen all decade. You yeah, right, right. All so um, I, I think that's what we're seeing here a little bit, though. Like, I, th I think there was an attempt, it feels like, to find some different types of Demir commanders, things that were not typically what we've seen in the past. And, and they've been successful, as far as we can tell. Players have jumped at the chance to build something a little outside that Demir box, and we're seeing three of them right here. Well, and it's not just Crimson Vow. Will Held's The Rot Cleaver came out in the set right before this one, and that one was also Demir. And Will Held is the runaway favorite from Midnight Hunt. So, in fact, let's go ahead and turn our attention from Crimson Vow to the set that came like a month and a half right before it, you know, talking about creative deck building energy and how much of it you've actually got to build. Let's look at some numbers from Midnight Hunt now. There were 17 total commanders, 17 legendary creatures that came out of the Midnight Hunt stuff. And out of the 17 commanders, just two of them make up half of that deck building energy. Wilhelt the Rock Cleaver and Tovalar the Werewolf Dire Overlord guy. They make up approximately half of the decks, of the 10,000 decks total that have been built from Midnight Hunt. It is approximate. It is not exactly half. It is as close to half as we can actually get when measuring things out. So, you know, note that for sure. But that's also really interesting. You know, the Demir commanders that we saw are runaways from Crimson Vow, and there's also a Demir commander that's leading the charge in Midnight Hunt because, well, the zombie infection, it got me too. Wilhelt has been one of my favorite decks I've ever, like, it's so much fun. So, like, I guess I do get it. I do understand. The the, the Demir infection has also seized me. Yeah, the, this set is, is probably the most, like, egregious when it comes to there's there's two heavy hitters and the rest just kind of fall by the wayside. Um, and and Wilhelt, I should note, Joey, isn't uh, running away with it in a landslide. It's a 10% difference between Tovalar and Wilhelt, but it is absolutely like those two are the only two that are really, um, you know, anything to, to write home about because the drop off is massive after Tovalar. Um, but yeah, everything else kind of falls out. And one thing that kind of stands out is like there are some like big like names in the lore that are in both of these sets. You know, Innistrada is kind of well known for having a lot of lore behind it. Yeah. Um, but Olivia, Crimson Bride, um, 
only 347 decks so far. Um, you had Old Stick Fingers, which was kind of like the, the meme commander that everybody was talking about. Uh, there's only 577 decks right now for Midnight Hunt. And, and I just... That's kind of crazy that like, even though people seemed very, very excited coming out of the gates, uh, that creative capital didn't last and it didn't translate into decks being built. I, I think Lind is another great example mm-hmm. as well. The curse commander, Lind Cheerful Tormentor, she is part of that big drop off that you mentioned where the second place commander from Midnight Hunt has 2,300 decks. And then the third place commander, Lind, has a thousand. That's that's a pretty steep drop off. And, and like curse commander. Heck yeah. We've always wanted that kind of thing. And it's still not quite as much of an appeal as the other things. And that's, that is what I think is so interesting. If you've been clamoring for a werewolf commander for a really long time and you kind of only have the capital to actually build one deck per set, well, when Midnight Hunt comes out, you want to build that werewolf deck and that's where all of your energy goes to. But if you also were interested in building curses, it might be harder. Like even though they are both really exciting commanders to you, it might end up being hard to justify building both of those things in one set. That isn't going to be as realistic for every player out there. Imagine if you also like zombies. I mean, building all three of those commanders from one set, it just seems like a whole lot. So I just think it's so fascinating how interesting commanders can overshadow each other just by dint of when they were released together. I also wouldn't be surprised if we don't see a ton of changes to any of these lists. Um, you know, looking at the Midnight Hunt set, um, Tovalar and Lind in, in the two and three slot, like we may well not see any new werewolves that inspire someone to build a Tovalar deck um, for the next several years, possibly. Same thing with Lind and Curses. Um, you know, people tend to build a new commander deck when there are cards in the deck that inspire you to build it. Um, we're just probably not going to see anything that's going to make anyone build that Tovalar deck or that land deck until we get back to Innistrad, possibly. Whereas with Wilhelt, we almost always get new zombie cards, that kind of thing. So um, I, I think this list is going to maintain stasis moving forward with Wilhelt continuing to get built. And we probably won't see a ton of new Tovalar or Lind decks probably, I'm guessing, in the fairly near future. Dana, I really hope this list does not pay the one blue every single turn. Um, that that stasis <laughs> just needs to get broken. Oh, that was... That, a that's a stacks joke. <laughs> well, and I think also, like, looking at those two sets, which are basically back-to-back... This is also sort of a phenomenon that we can kind of see about like maybe those sets competing with each other a, a little bit. I, I don't know if it's a ton, but like, again, there's kind of this relentlessness to the, the products being like constantly one right after another and like players sometimes begging for a reprieve online. But I feel like we might even feel this even greater when we look at sets that are also released alongside pre-con sets, because that is when the numbers get especially interesting. I'll, I'll actually start with uh, if we're moving along through the timeline, let's go to Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, and let's actually start with the precons. The Adventures in the Forgotten Realms precons, which contained commanders like Prosper and Sephiroth of the Hidden Ways, when we look at the 12 total legendary creatures that came out of those precons, what we see is that two of those commanders have just as many decks as the other 10 commanders from that set. So, you know, the top two commanders, a approximately reach about half of the 10,000 decks that came out of the legends from the AFR precons. Prosper in a definitely, Matt, this one is a runaway favorite lead, and Gallia Kindler of Hope combined to make roughly the same amount of decks as the other half, of, uh, as, the, as the rest of the other 10 uh, commanders from that set. I just think that's really, really interesting to see. And again, that's as close to half as it can be based on, you know, how many decks each one of them has. But 
That is not nearly as interesting to me as the effect that I think it has on the main set, because there are 10,000 decks that came out of the precons, the precon commanders from that set. But when we look at the actual Adventures in the Forgotten Realms set, not the precons, there are only 3,000 decks that have been built out of the commanders from the main AFR set. That feels like a huge overshadowing to me. That feels like a creative capital nightmare. I think that has more to do with none of the the legends from Adventures in the Forgotten Realms were particularly exciting. (gasps) I don't recall seeing a whole lot of folks really jazzed about too many of those, whereas the precons, obviously, yeah. Um, There's more Prosper decks out there than there are total decks with commanders from Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. Um, So if you want to talk about like one commander even overshadowing an entire set, um, you you have it right here. I wouldn't say they weren't exciting necessarily, but I I would say that this definitely felt like it was a step back in power, um, particularly from Strixhaven, is that right before it? Sure, sure. Um, So I I wonder how much of that was, was a result of us getting a ton of legends in Strixhaven that people maybe wanted to build because there were a lot of really splashy, interesting ones. And then we moved to AFR, where the power level was definitely ratcheted back a notch. Mm. I think that might have led to people combining both being burnt out and having spent a bunch of creative capital on the previous set, and then also looking at these that were not necessarily that obviously powerful and just deciding to take a couple months off when it came to brewing. And maybe saying that they weren't exciting isn't the right term. Um, They were a little narrow. Sure. They, they were a little fair. focused on doing adventure stuff or, um, you know, going in the uh, adventuring in the dungeon, anything like that. So, yeah, they might have been a little too specific. I mean, which is, I mean, Prosper is fairly specific. Like you would want to be doing all the treasures and casting things from exile. Um, but even then, like that was something that folks have been kind of asking for with with interesting Rakdos commanders. So, yeah, I. Saying that they weren't exciting was maybe a little little misworded on my part. And especially like, you know, because Matt, this is the set that had Dritzdewarden, that one, um, which I pronounced correctly. Thank you it very much. It sounds like a mosquito <laughs> hitting one of those neon lights. Just, Can just, you tell that we don't play? We don't, we, we don't <laughs> play DVDs. Forgotten Realms. Yep. Right. But that was certainly like one of the big names to come out of that set. And even that one is really far down the list. It only currently at time of recording has 268 decks to its name, Dritz Dorden. Like, I, I think that's very fascinating to see. It's, you know, it, Dritz Dorden has fewer decks than the Brunor Battlehammer, the Boros Equipment. Really? Like that is, Right. That's weird. I feel like that's really strange. So yeah, I, I think that this is a good thing to, to note is that the, the excitement uh, or the creative, uh, where the juices sort of uh, get flowing and where you want to start brewing and stuff, it does definitely feel like a lot of the pre-con commanders had more exciting things that would appeal more to a commander player, for sure. I'm super willing to cede that point, absolutely. But I just do think that it is interesting when we see that the pre-con release right along the main set did have a pretty significant impact on how many decks are being built from AFR. I feel like there's a non-zero amount that is certainly impacting that compared to when precon sets are not released right next to sets. Like, I I just feel like that is a thing worth noting. It's definitely interesting. And I'll be curious to see how, if this is a trend that holds up when we look at other sets down the road. Well, Dana, that almost sounds like we should be looking at some other sets down the road. Absolutely. But I think, I think maybe, I think we might actually need to not do that yet because I think what we actually ought to do at this moment in time is perhaps challenge some stats. Is that a thing we should do? Only if we're challenging stats when it's like sponsored by 
altersleeves.com slash EDH recast. Because everybody knows you can go to Alter Sleeves and get awesome inner sleeves to protect your cards. But also the cool thing about it, they don't damage your cards because somebody's writing on them or putting different art on them. They're just actually just going right over the current art that you already have on there, just adding some interesting, unique kind of ways to customize your cards. And it's great. And like I said, it protects them and you should be double sleeving your cards because, oh, that shuffle feels so satisfying. So yeah, altersleeves.com slash EDH recast. Um, that's how you challenge the stats properly, Joey. I appreciate you. Thank you. I am the master of segues. You can tell it was not forced whatsoever when I made that segue. So I appreciate you <laughs> mastering the, the segue segue. All right. Uh, real quick. Yes, this is challenge the stats. The one of our favorite features on the show because there's so much data on EDH rec, but we don't always agree with it. Sometimes we think that cards see too much or too little play. So let's take a break from those interesting creative capital deck building bandwidth numbers and talk a little bit about some individual cards that are seeing too much or too little play. Dana, how about you start us off this week? What is your challenge? The first card was sent to us by John Prime, who you can find on Twitter at Hubstraker. And the card is Skyclave Shadow Cat. It's three and a black for a cat horror. It's a three, three. And for one and a black, it says you can sacrifice another creature and put a plus one counter on Skyclave Shadow Cat. And whenever a creature you control with a plus one counter on it dies, you draw a card. Um, this is currently in just over 1,100 decks on EDH Rec. And John suggests that it should be in more plus one counter theme decks, particularly ones that feature uh, Rayhan, Last of the Abzan, in the command zone. And mm. the main reason why here is one of the tricks people tend to like to do with Rayhan is be able to sacrifice a creature mid-combat so you can move those counters around, preferably onto Rayhan when it is either not blocked or when it's the optimal time to do that. Um, the problem with a with a uh, a sack outlet like Azure Altar or something is the mana just goes away because you're in mid combat. Skyclave Shadowcat lets you draw a card and put a counter on the Shadowcat. Um, and you just, just gain advantage generally from a thing you were going to be doing anyway. Um, it can get pretty big all on its own. It can be a good thing to sacrifice in some other way to move those counters around. And it's a good way to move the counters onto Rayhan and do those kind of shenanigans. So um, it's in just over 1,100 decks. And it can be a pretty effective card in that Rayhan deck. You probably should see a little more play. I do appreciate me some plus one counters that get moved around and some sacrifice outlets. That is a thing that I super do appreciate. So I think I could get on board with that pick. Uh, I'm going to move to my challenge now, which is actually a challenge for Prosper Tomebound, because I notice there's a bit of a misunderstanding that I've seen a couple of times with Prosper, and it's regarding the card Mizzix's Mastery. Mizzix's Mastery is that amazing red sorcery, four mana, but you can overload it for eight mana, which is usually what people do with it, to exile all of the instants and sorceries from your graveyard, and then you make copies of all of those, and you can cast those copies. And that right there is the point of contention that I've seen uh, be misunderstood a couple of times, and so I'm using my Challenge to Stats segment here to point out a kind of a non-vote because the expectation that it looks like players are uh, thinking they'll get from Mizzix's Mastery is that when it exiles all of those spells and casts a bunch of spells from your graveyard, they think that that will trigger Prosper a whole bunch of times. But that isn't actually the way that Mizzix's Mastery works. Mizzix's Mastery exile those cards and then creates a copy of them and you cast the copies, but that doesn't necessarily count for Prosper's ability. So that is a non-bow that I wanted to point out here. Mizzix's Mastery, there is a bit of a, that isn't quite working with Prosper in the ways that folks might 
might want it to. So that is a card to be a little bit skeptical of if that is something that you are looking for in your Prosper decks. Just make sure that you know how that interaction is actually working out. Well, and Joey, I'll, I'll wrap this segment up then since that's how we normally do it um, around these parts. So um, our, our segues right now, our, our segues, segues are, are just uh, they're almost as good as Omnath Locus of Creation, which is the commander that I'm going to talk about. Um, so if you haven't heard, Omnath Locus of Creation is the uh, four color, no black um, version of Omnath that came out in Zendikar Rising. Um, when it enters the battlefield, you draw a card that has about eight paragraphs worth of landfall abilities. Um, basically, if you play three lands, you win the game. Um, not quite, but it's pretty dang close. Um, so one card that all the players out there seem to be very excited about with Omnath Locus, Locus of Creation is the new card from Crimson Vow, Cultivator Colossus. Now that card is very big, very splashy. It's a big green mythic. Um, it's seven mana for a, a plant beast with trample. Um, power and toughness equals the number of lands you control. And then when it enters the battlefield, you may put a land from your hand onto the battlefield tapped. And if you do, you draw a card and repeat this process. That's all well and good. Um, but when the average deck is only playing 37 lands, more often than not, you might play a land and then draw a card, and that's about it. Um, Cultivator Colossus is seven mana, and with a lot of the ramp spells that you're playing in the typical Omneth uh, Locus of Creation decks, you're pulling a lot of lands out of the deck. So you're not going to be able to chain all these lands together like a lot of players were originally hyped to do when you're only playing 37 lands on average. Um, if you're playing upwards like 45-ish, you might have better chances, um, but the numbers there don't really justify Cultivator Colossus. But if you want a big beater that's going to be able to go to town on your opponents and also being able to get lands and feed itself, might I suggest the card Uvenwild Hydra, which is another Innistrad card, um, but back from the Shadows Over Innistrad block. Um, so Uvenwild Wild Hydra is um, four and, a and two green uh, for a creature with reach, has power and toughness equal to number of lands you control, and when it enters the battlefield, you may search your library for a land card and put onto the battlefield tapped and shuffle your library. So this is a great way to get utility lands out of your library, get them in, um, whether you want that Valakut, oh. um, that way you can start triggering all of your mountains, whether you need a utility land, anything like that. Uh, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of Uvenwald Hydra, and so while 48% of decks um, play, uh, with Omneth at the helm that have updated their decks since Cultivator Colossus came out. Um, they're putting Cultivator Colossus in there. Currently, Uvenwald Hydra, which has been out for a long time, uh, not on the page at all. Turns out only 4% of Omnath Locus of Creation decks are playing Uvenwald Hydra. Um, I think folks should be swapping those numbers around. If you're playing a very high number of lands, Cultivator Colossus, yes, can be a colossal <laughs> just beat down. Um, but Uvenwald Hydra, there. thank you, Joey. <laughs> um, Uvenwald Hydra, I think, is going to give you so much more consistent value. You're going to get this, the specific land that you want. And also, it's just a massive creature that's going to be able to bat down all those flyers. Um, I love Uvenwald Hydra. Cultivator Colossus is a little hit or miss. Um, I think folks should be making that swap. Uh, Cultivator Colossus was such an interesting card to see previewed because it, it sparked that initial, oh, this is absolutely busted. This is broken. What are we going to do? Sky is falling type of mentality. And then it was like, the card's fine. That's kind of like- It's what, fine. Yeah. It's it's re it's real super duper okay. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is good. But I think you're right that it certainly needs a bit more building around. And 37 lands is a low land count for an average number of lands in a landfall deck. That is, that that's, I'm bonus challenging on mats right there. 37 lands in an Omnath deck is way too few for an average number. Yeah, if, if even if you're Dana and you put Cultivator Colossus in your deck, you're gonna you're gonna change the number of lands you're playing. There you go. You hear that, Dana? That's, that's what, not the but, number uh, of basics, though, right? Not the number of basics. Never, right, never. Right, I'm fine. 
You should never play more basics. No, D- Dana. Dana's over here. Like, yeah, I'll I'll play two times more basics. Right. He has zero basics. <laughs> so yeah. it's still zero. <laughs> yeah, and, and also just Matt. I also love the the hydro pick too because like that is a card that the more I see it, the more it does impress me. He's fetching any land that is actually pretty cool. Like it's sort of subtly powerful in that way. Any folks who are a fan of MTG Mudsta's channel will probably have seen Olvenwald Hydra do a whole lot of work. Um, so shout out to to Mudsta because that is a cool card that I've certainly see, seen uh, to great use on his channel and uh, seen used to great use in Matt Morgan's decks where he obliterates me with an Uvalmwald Hydra, which has reach. I always forget that it has reach, Matt. It does indeed have reach. And that's like one of those secretly great defensive abilities, kind of like Vigilance, where you never really think about it, but it's like, oh yeah, that card does get to stay around as a blocker. Oh yeah, that yeah. card does get to block my my flyers. Oh yeah. All right, guys, let, 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 let's get back into our main topic here. Let's talk about players' creative bandwidth, deck building capital, whatever it is that we were calling it, the deck building energy that players have the ability to, to get to and how it might be impacted by a whole bunch of products and a whole bunch of commanders all being released, all of that. Let's just take a look at some more numbers here. And uh, I'm going to go to the Commander 2021 sets because we had been talking about how precons might be affecting actual set releases earlier when we were talking about AFR. So let's examine the Strixhaven Commander Precons and the Strixhaven set to see what's going on with those. So Commander 2021, there were 20 legendary creature options from Commander 2021. And this, of course, was the set that had such famous hits as Ozgear the Reconstructor and Varen Voice of Duality. And when we look at the 17 thousand decks that were created out of the Legends from Commander 2021, we see that four of them Four of those commanders make up approximately half of the decks that were built from Commander 2021. Osgir, Varen, Adrix and Nev, and Brina the Demagogue all combined to make roughly as many decks as the other 16 commanders from that Commander Precon set. Holy whoa. One thing worth noting here is we did have a good separation among the color pairings. There's one Boros commander, one is a commander, one Simic commander, and one Orzov commander. Um, and if you go to number five on the list, uh, Guyom Master Chef, who's Golgari, um, we're continuing that separation. So um, that's kind of useful to see here, the fact that like people, they, they weren't clumping up on one particular color pair, but they were spreading out what they actually found interesting. Mm, Yeah. And especially, it doesn't seem like there was any one that got ignored Mm -hmm. is maybe the word. And Matt, this is certainly a topic that's been of especially interest to you, I know, because you've noticed too that like when a whole bunch of deck building energy goes to like the big top commanders or something like that, then that kind of can leave some other interesting commanders by the wayside. And especially the interest is driven towards like multicolored commanders or especially commanders that aren't mono white or stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so you, I know you've been very especially interested in how this effect of commanders overshadowing each other might sometimes cause colors to be left behind. And it doesn't seem like that's as much the case here. Which is kind of awesome to see, actually. But then when you think back to what was going on in Commander 2021, the Lorehold deck was doing things that, you know, the the, the red and white color combination hadn't really been doing too much before. So mm-hmm. I'm not surprised at all when I see that Osgear is just kind of running away, not quite running away, but, you know, has a significant lead over the second place commander from the set. Um, and then even when you look down the line, like Alibu still has some respectable numbers among the rest of the list. Um, I like what they did with 
this. And so seeing the even coverage, I think shows just how well designed this commander pre-constructed set was um, just overall. Um, There's nothing super runaway. There were some very good things that were going on. Some, some things that players were obviously very excited about, but nobody felt like they got left behind for once. Like there was no one deck that everybody wanted. And then one deck that literally nobody cared about. You gave it to your little brother and their <laughs> Christmas stocking. Oh, wow. Oh, is that how you feel about your little brother, Matt? Is that the coal in the Christmas? That, there, yeah, there, there's no, um, um, what was the, uh, there's no Aloro pre The Anya Merciless Archangel deck that yeah, was that oh. pawned off on the little there sibling. Oh, no. Oh, you guys, I'm glad I'm not your your little brother. Wow, y'all are, y'all are savage. Y'all are savage pranksters to your siblings. Holy crap. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I will note here, talking about how, how I tend to not build decks, this is probably the one exception I did build a commander deck out of a card in this set. Um, I have a Tavash Gloom Summoner deck, so uh, fourth from the bottom. But I did build a I did build a semi new commander here. A commander. I feel like I built like two from this set. Like this was this was a set that was actually so good that I feel like I did actually just like oh I want to build so many of these, but I didn't have the energy to build. In fact, all of these. I, but I love that your example of this actually broke through, and this made me definitely want to to play all of the things and to build a whole bunch of decks. I built one. I love that that's your example, Dana. (laughs) Oh, goodness. That is incredible. So here's also kind of a, I feel like a relevant question when it comes to just within the pre-cons. How do you think reprint value might have affected numbers like this? Like we see that Ozgear is the number one commander from the uh, the 2021 pre-con set. I feel like the reprints in that deck were a bit of a mark above the other decks that we saw there. Do you think that that influenced the numbers that players were especially interested in getting those precons and then built the deck after getting uh, getting that? They built that commander. Do you think that might have had an influence on these, Dana? Yes or no? It's hard to say. Um, it's never influenced me. I, I have specifically sometimes picked a deck because a deck has more value than another one. Um, but I, I don't know if it's ever made me want to keep it together. I've just like pulled the cards out I wanted. Sure. Um, but that's me. So like I, I, I'm not going to try to apply that thinking to everyone else. It's possible. Um, I, I wouldn't think that was the case. I, I would think the reason Osgear is so popular here is it's a strong Boros commander um, doing things that aren't necessarily um, what you usually see in Boros colors. Um, that's a pretty good combination. Something unique and something strong in a color pair that usually doesn't have something strong. I think that's much more likely a driver than it is just good reprints. Yeah, I, I think with the note that we made about the pre-constructed decks a couple minutes ago about the newer players are grabbing these pre-constructed decks and just running with them. I don't think they really care too much about reprint equity because they don't know what reprints even mean. Um, so they're just grabbing these decks. They're playing them. They might stumble across, you know, Architect and throw their list online. Okay. Um, I think that's probably more likely to be happening than than folks caring about the the $5 difference between <laughs> the Lorehold deck and the Izzet deck or the, excuse me, Prismari deck. Well, and, and so that's just it. What I wanted to say, Dana, you said you said Boros a couple yeah, of I times did, now, yes. and we need to we, we need it's to remind you. And it's Loros. Prizit, Prizit, and I, I'm I'm done. I'm done forcing that. This is Strixhaven. Do you, do you need to be sent to the principal's office, Dana? I still call Commander EDH, so I guess I'm. That's just an old person thing. <laughs> oh goodness. Well, and so real quick, let's also focus in very briefly on the actual Strixhaven set proper and see if things were majorly affected, minorly affected. What were you know the effects that we see in the Strixhaven main set? And here there were 14 legendary creatures from the main Strixhaven set, and 
three of those 14 control about half of the deck building energy there, them being Extus Auric Overlord, Dina Soul Steeper, and Cody Vociferous Codex. And those three have just as many decks as the other 11 commanders from that set, and there are about 10,000 decks total, which is less than we see for Commander 21. I'm just curious if you guys have thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I'm actually a little surprised given how uh, powerful Strixhaven was kind of as a set and how many kind of odd, interesting commanders there were. I would have thought these numbers might be a little more balanced. But when you look at the commanders, um, Exodus was a, a very interesting commander that caught a lot of attention. Number one being kind of the only three color thing you could do in that set. And it was a strange, unique, and it was also pretty powerful. Um, Dina being a, just a combo machine right in the command zone. Oh, yeah. And then Cody seeing a lot of competitive play. I think there's logical reasons those three were all very powerful and or all very popular, I should say. I, I guess I can see why those have definitely risen to the top for sure. Well, and, and two, like we talk about like the severe drop off, um, the number four commander, Belladress Witherbloom had, a, you know, has very respectable numbers, almost 1500 decks, only about a hundred or so behind Cody. But after that, the numbers just start to plummet where you yeah. have mm -hmm. a lot of commanders that just aren't being played, just not terribly popular with only like a couple hundred maybe to their name. So you start really seeing those numbers that we talked about at the beginning of the show where like the, there's the cream of the crop and then there's literally just like a mountain of other things. And, and that's just it, because I feel like looking at those commanders, I feel like those commanders that are getting overlooked a little bit, that are plummeting in the numbers, I feel like those are still cream of the crop style commanders. Quintorius Field Historian is also an interesting Boros design that I feel like all of the other stuff going on has caused to be a little overshadowed. Killian Ink Duelist is really, really cool. And if it had been released in a different context, I think it wouldn't have been overshadowed here. But in this case, it does feel like it managed to be a bit overshadowed. And I feel this way about some of the cards from the commander precons as well. There are just some very interesting cards that do, by dint of the way that they are released, seem to get overshadowed. And I just think that's an interesting note to take when it comes to the ways that cards are being designed and how they are packaged together and release and, and released when there are you know, 20 legends per set, still some of the interesting stuff just ends up falling through the cracks. And I think that's a little bit sad and it makes me want to refocus my deck building energy as much as I possibly can, but man, is it hard. I mean, so maybe Joe, you can't answer this question quite as well as Dana can, but like you, you mentioned all those commanders in Strixhaven that like you, you feel got overlooked. Could you imagine like the problem Killian Inc. Duelist would have been if it were released in 2011? <laughs> like back, back like when Rafik of the Many was like an unbeatable commander. Like yeah. a lot of these commanders, like you're yeah. right, they, they are absolute like cool things, but like they're coming out in an age where there are so many just other great designs that it's, it's easy to overlook some otherwise very powerful things like cards that would, if they were been released even five years ago would have stood out among the pack yeah honestly matt that like that is kind of the the lesson for me as we're like sort of you know we just went through a bunch of individual sets and we saw some individual numbers there but to me the thing to note is the trend that we see an average of about three commanders from any given set tend to make up half of the deck building that gets done from that set. It does kind of vary, but generally when we look back on sets like Theros, or when we look back on Ikoria, or, you know, even stuff like Jumpstart, like what we tend to see is between two and four, but often three, the top three commanders do tend to take up about half of the deck building energy. There are exceptions to this, some really big sets out there like Dominaria, if we were to 
look at those numbers, it would be a slightly higher, but it is still only like five or something like that. And Commander Legends is certainly its own big thing with 73 legendary creatures to, to build from, but also a whole bunch of partners that makes it especially tough to measure. But to me, like that is just the lesson that I think is so interesting here is observing that trend where in any given set, a very small amount of the commanders tend to drive a whole lot of that stuff. And that means that the stuff that isn't, you know, the non-top commanders, there tends to be a whole lot of them. And I just get sad if some of those commanders get overshadowed. But then again, maybe I shouldn't be too sad because it does mean that deck builders like Dana will have a whole lot of hipster cred to cash in in the future. Isn't that right, man? I mean, yeah, like you joke about that, but like that is very much the case. <laughs> and not even necessarily if, if you are someone who is consciously aware of that maybe, but you know, thinking back to seven years-ish ago where a course that would come out and would have five monocolor legends in it and that was it. Um, and three of them weren't, weren't any good. <laughs> like if you wanted to build a new deck and you were like feeling that itch, you didn't have very many options to begin with. And there was a very good chance that in your shop, six little people would build the same legend. Like mm-hmm. that that wasn't maybe very fun to build the same deck everyone else was building. Whereas today when we're seeing, you know, 25 options per set, even if the top couple of them are very powerful or very popular, there's still plenty of choices for you to dig through to find something that appeals to you um, and maybe appeals to you and also isn't something you're going to see a bunch being played around you. So I think, I mean, it is, I think, overwhelming, but it's also probably a good thing, I think, more often than not for people to just have these this many choices. Yeah, if, if you want to have a hipster type commander like Dana does, you don't have to be playing, you know, like Kong Ming or some P3K legend. Like, you, mm-hmm. you have powerful options there. Or at least like open-ended and you can interpret them different ways type of commanders too. Like they're not just very narrow type of things doing only one thing. And even then they're not doing it very well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of the the rising tides type of thing where like all ships are going up. Yeah. Everybody is benefiting from it. It's great. So yeah. Yeah. I think that's a lesson I can get on board with. It does feel a lot like an avalanche, but we do also still get those feelings of I've never seen that commander before because there are just indeed so many options to choose from. But for me, at least, like I had a whole bunch of fun building Wilhelt this year and Wilhelt is the number one commander from Midnight Hunt. And it was such like, oh, man, it was a revelation playing that deck. I loved it so much. But especially looking over to see just how popular popular actually is and to see sometimes the disparity that can happen between the most popular commanders and the ones that they don't get left behind necessarily but like i do see those and it makes me want to lean a little bit more into acknowledging we're trying to build around some of those commanders that don't get nearly as much attention uh and i guess dana it's kind of winning me over to the style that you build but uh, i i am probably going to resist waiting the full two years like you tend to do before you build anything <laughs> i think that is my lesson here question mark i think yeah Sounds like it could be a good lesson. Well, well we've met halfway, Joey, because clearly I built a commander that wasn't two years old this year as well. So we're we're both um, impacting hey, each other here, apparently. There you go. That 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 right there is the the best lesson. I love it. With that, I do think that we should probably call this episode to a close. There were a whole bunch of numbers. Listeners, we would love to hear what you think about the stuff that we've gone over today and what you think about that big grand total at the beginning that we mentioned where 8% of the commanders in the format control 50% of the commander deck building energy out there. What do you think of that? And maybe what are some of your favorite commanders that came out in the past year that you feel might be getting a little overlooked? We would really love to hear from you. And fellas, if our listeners want to get in touch with us specifically, where is it that they 
can to find us all. Matt? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDHRecast, where we have some awesome guests on every single week, and the games are always a ton of fun. So make sure you tune in, because it's always a blast. Indeed. And Dana? You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can hear me on my other podcast, CMDR Central. I am writing articles for both EDH Rec and for Commander's Herald, and you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash edhreccast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at edhreccast on Facebook and on Twitter as well. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at edhreccast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to the whole team at the Command Zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast, and we want to thank our sponsors, TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. And you can visit altersleeves.com slash edhreccast for cool custom edhrec sleeves. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insight But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.